follow along on the screen or in your Bibles as I read. Hear the word of God. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, We'll look at this just asking some questions about unity. Unity, because it's really a psalm about unity. Uh, We'll ask, what what is this unity that the psalm calls us to? And then why is this unity so important? And then last, how, how can we get it? How can we have the unity of this psalm? So you might remember that this is one of the psalms of ascent. It's a collection of 15 psalms, uh, numbers 120 through 134. And the tradition says that these were psalms that were sung by the people of God as they journeyed up to Jerusalem uh, several times a year on pilgrimage. And so... You know, God's people were scattered all over the place, many living far from home in like really hostile lands. And these were their traveling songs as they would make these pilgrimages. And so for them, it was literally, they're they're called songs of ascent because they were literally, you know, ascending first up the hill um, and then that Jerusalem is on and then within the city up the hill to the temple itself. So listen again to verse one. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When you think of God's people making their journey to Jerusalem, you might imagine, you know, a little group making a road trip. Because that's what we're used to in the United States. You know, we pack up our families in the car and we hit the road. But no, uh, this was actually like an incredibly diverse collection of the 12 tribes, like with their different clans, different families, all acting as one common kinship network. And somehow like harmoniously unified in all of their diversity, making their way together to Jerusalem. And and so uh, each of of these tribes had their own cultures, their own habits and customs, their own ways of doing things, and yet they would come together three times a year to make this journey. So, So that's one thing to see right away, is when we think about the unity that this psalm calls us to, what does it mean? Like, it's not sameness, right? It's not the unity that's envisioned here. It's not uniformity. Um, It does not mean a community where everyone is alike and where everyone is the same and everyone is in total agreement about everything because God's people have never been that. (laughs) They've never been that. Um, They are in agreement about some things. For example, uh, in order for this psalm to work as a psalm of, of ascent, everyone had to know it. Everyone had to be able to sing it. But, but it's not uniformity, it's like harmony in diversity. And if you think about it, this is really kind of the, the vision of, of community that the Bible holds up for us from beginning to end. Think about the big story with me. When, in the beginning, when God creates Adam and Eve, God makes them uniquely in his image, but, but Adam and Eve aren't clones of one another, are they? Like they're male and female. There's real differentiation. There's already this difference right there in the beginning. It's like God's image maybe requires some kind of diversity. In Genesis 12, it's another one of those major turning points in the story. You remember 
that God promises a Messiah who will bless all the families of the earth. And so we see really early on that God desires to bring like the whole collection of cultures and nations into his family. And if you fast forward to Jesus' own life, we see him bringing together like a wide array of different kinds of people into um, his little community, um, people from all sorts of different backgrounds and ways of life, men and women, upper class, lower class, all together into a common family united around Jesus. In the early church, um, Paul writes regularly about this new family of God, uh, the household of God, in which he says there is neither male nor female, slave or free, but we are like all bound together in Christ. And uh, when pressure arises in the community uh, toward uniformity, Paul challenges that. You remember that, like in 1 Corinthians 12, where he, he goes out of his way to say, like, you aren't all an eye. You're not all a hand. Like, there's supposed to be real distinctions among us. The body of Christ needs diversity in order for it to function harmoniously as a body. And if you fast forward again to the end of the Bible story in Revelation chapter 7, you remember we see all the nations gathered around the throne of God, like people of every tribe, people of every tongue, people from unimaginably diverse backgrounds and cultures all gathered around the Lamb singing the praises of Jesus. So the biblical image of community, it's, it's um, like this rich diversity uh, in harmony, unity around Jesus. So biblical unity is not about sameness. I mean, that's the first real simple thing to see. Like we want there to be great differences among us. Uh, in gifts, in abilities, in cultures, in backgrounds, in perspectives, because the church is a place where like all, all of the differences of humanity, genders, classes, races, cultures, income levels, perspectives, they come together around Jesus, and we learn to live in unity together. Um, not uniformity, but harmony and diversity. <clears throat> I should say this. Some of you were here last week, and... Um, Rhonda said something near the end of the service. She said, Arthur Ruppert's here, and we should have Arthur Ruppert come up and say something. And I said, no, we shouldn't. And I was reflecting about that later and feeling like that was a mistake. And um, I called Arthur, and I apologized to him. And Arthur, and I apologized to you, too, if you were here, because I, I closed down like an opportunity for you to hear from like one of the most remarkable human beings I know, this dear Arthur Ruppert. Um, so we're going to have him back, and he's going to share. But I, I shut that down. I apologized to Arthur. Arthur being Arthur forgave me, but he said, you know, Kevin, what I would have shared is that it was so good being with you all on Sunday because it felt like it was a little, um, just a little foretaste of heaven. Um, because there was, there is, if you look around, like, God is, God is doing something in our family that is rich in diversity, that is a, it's a glimpse of the kingdom. And it would have been better to hear Arthur say that. And he would have said that last week um, on it. And I apologize to you too. <laughs> Good. Good. So, so, uh, so th that's, that's biblical unity. It's not sameness. Um, it's this rich diversity and harmony. Now, why is that so important? Well, the psalm gives us uh, two images, which sounds strange to our modern ears, but, but they help us to see um, the value of unity and, and our need for it. So first we get this image of oil. 
Listen again to verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So what is this about? Uh, In the Old Testament, this is a reference to the consecration of the priests. When someone was called to the priesthood, they would be set apart from the community as different and distinct, and there would be a ceremony in which oil was poured over the head as a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that, that oil would run down into the beard as a symbol of his consecration to God. And so the point is that in the same way that oil sets the priests apart, so unity is supposed to set God's people apart. Unity is meant to make us distinct and kind of odd and different. Uh, it marks us as God's people. And so in addition to having that symbolic purpose, oil also had like the very practical function of helping the priest's beard smell good and look good. And if you've ever had like an inappropriately large beard, uh, you, know, you know that there are all kinds of things that can go wrong with it. It can look bad and it can, in fact, smell bad. And that thing needs to be oiled. We might say it like this, God loves beards and has a wonderful plan for their lives. And that plan includes a whole lot of oil. Oil helps the beard be the beard that it was meant to be. And that's what unity does for the Christian community. It gives us, um, it gives us the aroma of Christ. Uh, it helps us to appear as we ought to appear. It makes the Christian community attractive. No one wants to be a a part of a community that's characterized by all kinds of conflict and division and discord, by polarization and infighting between different factions. Uh, Disunity, we all know, it actually does stink. It's unruly, and it needs the oil of unity. So that's that's what the oil is about. There's there's another image that we get in verse 3. The psalmist says, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And so this is really interesting because Mount Hermon was a mountain up in the far north of Israel, and the, there was, the dew of that region did make that mountain like very verdant, green with growing. Uh, not so much in Zion, because Zion is further south, and it's just more arid. It's more, um, the climate is a lot drier. But the psalm is just inviting us to imagine what would it be like for the dew of Mount Hermon to fall on Mount Zion. Like, how wonderful would that be? How, how, how good would that be for the parched ground of Zion to receive the dew that falls on Mount Hermon? And so God's people dwelling together in unity is like, it's like that. It's like the refreshing dew of Mount Hermon falling on Zion. And the, the point is, unity and harmony is what, we, is, is what will lead um, to real growth and to real fruitfulness. Um, harmony is to the church what do is to plants. Unity among God's people brings fruitfulness to the, to the community of God's people. And so do you see why this is important? Like when we are a di- diverse group of people acting in unity around Jesus, we show ourselves to be um, distinct and set apart, and we experience the fruitfulness that God desires for his people on mission so that through us, more and more people would come to know and trust and love Jesus. Remember, this is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Um, he said, I pray that they will be one. And he's talking to his father. He says, just as you and I are one. So that's like really 
profound unity. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they, so may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Isn't that remarkable? Of all the things that Jesus could have been praying for in these um, last days leading up to his death, he prays for unity, that his people would be unified, that we would be one. And why? It's so that the world will believe the gospel, so that the world will see a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. Um, Leslie Newbegin, he says, it is surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind him was not a book, nor a creed, nor a system of thought, nor a rule of life, but a visible community. I mean, that's what Jesus created, and that's what Jesus left behind. It's like, more than anything else, what helps people see and believe the truth about Jesus is a diverse group of people united around him, committing to living out the way of the gospel together. I mean, when the world sees inexplicable harmony and diversity, when people, when people who, who wouldn't ever possibly like, get along out in the world somehow find a way to get along within the community of the church, well, people start to notice. People start to wonder, what in the world is going on? It will be like the dew of Hermon falling on Zion. So that's why it's so important. And then let's just ask last, how do we get this? How do we get this unity? And the psalm gives us some clues. Note that three times there's a reference to descending or running down in the short psalm. Uh, unity is like precious oil running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, and then it is also like the dew coming down on Mount Zion. So running down, flowing down, coming down. Unity comes from above. It moves downward. The great Old Testament scholar uh, Derek Kidner said it like this, true unity like all good gifts is from above. It's bestowed rather than contrived. A blessing far more than an achievement. So the first thing to notice and affirm is that true unity is just an accomplishment of God himself. How do we get it? Well, God gives it as a gracious gift. It's a blessing from God himself, which suggests that, dis, that disunity is not merely a social problem. You know, so, so often we treat it like that. It's, it's not the kind of thing, though, that we can fix by like tolerance workshops or, or more education. And, and I'm not saying that those are bad. Like, I think that those can be really helpful. I think that like, we could all use more education when it comes to unity, but I'm just saying that like, those efforts are insufficient for the kind of unity that this psalm envisions. Because before it's a social, social problem, disunity is a spiritual problem. I mean, the diagnosis that scripture gives is that we're so, um, as, as fallen creatures, we're so turned in upon ourselves and our hearts are so poisoned by, by sin and by pride that now like, just our default mode is conflict and self-preservation. And so what unity requires first is not better training and education, but rescue. Like that is what unity requires before anything else. We need God to accomplish in us what we can't change about ourselves. It must come as a gift from above. And family, remember, that's exactly what scripture says has happened. Um, this unity is what Jesus has accomplished for us. 
You remember in Ephesians where, where Paul's talking about the racial and cultural conflict between the Jewish and Gentile factions in the early church. Paul says this. He says, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose which is amazing, like Paul's talking about the purpose of the cross, the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. His purpose was to create one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So did you hear that? I mean, Jesus, through his death on the cross, has accomplished unity. This was his purpose, um, tearing down the barriers that, that divide us from one another and also... Um, just obliterating the barrier that divides us from God. In his death on the cross, Jesus is creating a new community based on grace alone. I mean, grace alone. Not, not race, not class, not status or social standing, not political preference, not religion, not ideology. Just grace, period. So Jesus' death destroyed all the sin and hostility that separates us from God and each other, and, and unity is first then just a free gift for us to receive. It flows down from above like beard oil. It's a gift to be received every morning like the morning dew. But after unity is given by God in Christ, unity does become a responsibility for us as God's people. So later in Ephesians, Paul writes, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I think that, that word maintenance is significant. Like Paul doesn't say make every effort to create the unity of the Spirit or to find the unity of the Spirit or to attain the unity of the Spirit. We're just called to keep it. We're, we're called to maintain it. We're called to protect it and guard it. And so um, how do we do that? How do we do that? Let me just say a, a few things about this. Like one way we can, we can maintain the unity of the spirit is just to keep Jesus central. Keep Jesus central. And what I mean by that is to remember that um, if we are people who are following Jesus, like Jesus is, is the bedrock foundation of our identity more than anything else. More than anything else. In our world of like identity politics and cancel culture, um, it is so easy for us to think of ourselves as defined by all the categories around us right now and to, and to just identify with these other groups and, um, and then to define ourselves and also others according to these categories that are just completely foreign to the logic of the gospel. And when Jesus gathered his disciples, he put himself at the center of that community and he called guys like Simon the Zealot, who was like a radical conservative looking to overthrow the government. And he also called guys like Matthew the tax collector who was a social liberal working for the state. And, and these guys spent years on the road just traveling around together and they didn't kill each other. <laughs> like they were, they were part of the same family united around Jesus. And, and, and we asked, well, how, how can that be? How is that happening? It's just because their deeper foundation, like their deepest loyalty was to Jesus alone. Their life in Christ and with Christ was more central to their identity than anything else. And, and so they did not let their politics 
come between their relationship with Jesus, and they didn't let their politics come between their relationship with one another. Um, and, and so family, if and when you find yourself tempted to separate and to pull back and to judge and to condemn, I mean, I think a question that we're invited to ask is, who am I? Who am I? Where do I get my identity? Um, am I letting myself be formed by Jesus? Or am I being more formed by all of these other cultural pressures? And they are intense. I mean, I know that. I experience them just the same as you do. Um, but they are other cultural pressures. That is not the pressure of Jesus that would drive Christians apart from one another. And so keep Jesus central. Um, second, we can value diversity in the body of Christ. Um, you know, one of the ways that we often seek unity is through assimilation, which means that we basically try to make others like us, and we try to get others to agree with us. Um, you know, Libby and I have been married for over two decades now, and we're still discovering ways in which we try to kind of uh, form each other into our own likeness. Here's an, an example that's fresh in my mind, and, and I want to be very careful how I say this, uh, for reasons that will become obvious. You know how sometimes, sometimes you can just like know something to be true in a kind of just deep in your bones, gut level kind of way. You just know it's true. You just know it's true. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Just know it's true because it's true. Well, in that way, I just know that I'm a way better driver than Libby is. <laughs> And this week, we drove down uh, to North Carolina to pick up our boys from camp. And, and it was like a six-hour drive there and a six-hour drive back. And we took turns driving, and so I had plenty of time to observe Libby's driving <laughs> and to make some mental notes and maybe on occasion to sh share some really helpful tips. <laughs> you know, like some pointers. And... and uh, this is just the most recent instance of a common occurrence in our marriage. And, and um, after all these years, there, there are things, there are a couple of things that continue to perplex me. Like first, when I share these really helpful driving tips, um, I'm not able to detect any thankfulness on Libby's part, which is weird and surprising because I think that getting free, free driving lessons from like someone whose skills are up there, uh, like, and, like, free of charge, like, that, that would lead to gratitude. Uh, so I just assume that that's happening, like, somewhere on some deep, hidden level. <laughs> Libby, sorry. Uh, but the other perplexing thing is that empirically, like, when I stop to really think about the facts, empirically, on paper, according to our driving records, Libby actually is a way better driver than I am. Uh, like, I've had multiple accidents. They've all been my fault. I don't think Libby has ever had a single accident. I've been pulled over for speeding. I don't think Libby's ever been pulled over. So, so that's also perplexing. But, but I'm, still, I'm still trying, though, to just shape Libby into my, my uh, image as a really outstanding driver. Um, listen to these convicting words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, he says this, God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, 
that is, in my own image. Rather, in his freedom from me, God made this person in, in his image. And then Bonhoeffer says this, I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. That's a remarkable statement. I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. And I bet hardly any of us really believes that. I mean, too often we think we know exactly how the image of God should look in other people. But what if we took this seriously? I mean, that God's image in another might look incredibly different than God's image in me. Um, You see, biblical unity, family, is not the result of assimilation. Assimilation always sees difference as a threat. But what if we could learn to really value difference within the body? So returning to the metaphor of oil for a second, you know, the oil of anointing for priesthood, um, in the New Testament, what becomes clear is that it's given to the entire Christian community, that each of us who is connected to Jesus is set apart with some unique gift to offer the community, whether it be through like our gifts or our culture or our experience and background or our personality, like each one of us has something that the community around Jesus desperately needs for it to function well. And, and so I, th- I think there's just a challenge for us to um, look at people in our community in this way, even people we might like profoundly disagree with, to see that, that these individuals are gifts to the community who we desperately need for the community to be what it's supposed to be. Instead of seeing them as a threat or as an opponent or as someone to shut down on social media, or as someone to correct or change or to make more like you, like, can we learn to see one another as like precious gifts, uh, loved by God, sanctified by God in Christ, with something to offer us? You know, I, I come back to these words of Rowan Williams again and again, and I know I've, I've shared them with you before, but I'll just keep sharing them with you because I, I know I need to, this reminder all the time. He says, the first thing to think when in the presence of another Christian or Christian community is what is Christ giving me through this person or this group? He says, given that we may not always see eye to eye with other Christians we mix with, this can be hard work. But nonetheless, Jesus has brought us together precisely so that we approach one another with that degree of expectancy. It doesn't mean that you will agree with everything the other Christian says or does. It simply means that you begin by asking, what is Jesus Christ giving me here and now? Um, What is Jesus Christ giving me here and now in this person, in this community? It's an invitation to see one another as gifts of Jesus himself. Um, So, keep Jesus central. Learn to value the, the diversity of Christ's body Um, Third, prioritize unity. Like, look at what the psalmist is doing. He's he's celebrating it. He's he's how good and pleasant it is. Like, how wonderful, how beautiful is this this gift of unity? Um, It's so precious, family. It's so precious. Um, It's it's so easily lost. It's like it's this precious thing that, uh, and if we don't maintain it, it it can fall apart. It can dissipate. It can disappear. It's so precious that it's one of the last things Jesus prayed for before his death. And so there's just an invitation for us to to see it as precious and to prioritize it. 
Will you prioritize unity? Will you commit to praying for the unity of the church in like a regular, sustained way? Because this is something that Jesus cares about big time. Some of you remember the word devil. It comes from the Greek word diabolos. And etymologically, uh, that word, it shares, it, it basically comes from a verb that means um, like if you broke it down, literally it would be like to cast through or to cut through. So it's a word that means to split up and to divide. And, and, and so I think that's instructive for us just to remember that the devil is a splitter. Like the devil is always trying to split apart what is supposed to be together. Uh, you know, marriages, families, communities, cities, nations. Uh, and yeah, because, because Jesus' mission is so firmly attached to the unity of the church, I mean, we can be sure that the devil just has his sights set on splitting up the Christian community and family. Just don't let him. Don't let him. What is, um, don't give the devil a foothold. I don't even remember where that is. James? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, prioritize unity. Like, what if unity was way more important to us than being right? What if unity were, were way more important to us than having our own way, having our own preferences met? Let's prioritize it. Let's treat it as the beautiful and precious gift that it is. And then last, remember that all of this is the Spirit's work. Um, this harmony and diversity is not something that you and I can pull off by our own effort. Uh, this is the Spirit's good work, work in us. Um, the Spirit is the one who comes down upon us like beard oil. I mean, the oil represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so there's an invitation, family, just again, to open ourselves to receive the Holy Spirit and to invite the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus says, um, this is one gift that you can be sure your Father will give you when you ask for it. You remember that? Where Jesus says, like... <laughs> Um, not, not all dads know how to good, give good gifts to their kids, but your Father in Heaven does, and He will not be stingy with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, so when I, uh, I, was thinking about, I was thinking about Charles and Hannah this week. Hannah's not in here. But um, I worked up in Newark, Newark, New Jersey for a little while after seminary and I worked with a guy named Bill Iverson and Bill Iverson's dad uh, his name was Daniel Iverson and he is the author of that great song that we've sung from time to time spirit of the living God fall afresh on us and so Hannah's not, Hannah I think is back with the kids but so that would be I guess that would be Hannah's great grandfather wrote that song and it's a wonderful song uh, which we're gonna sing as a way of closing in prayer um, but because I never know exactly what the lyrics are, uh, <laughs> um, it's spirit of the living God follow fresh on us. But then let's say melt us. Everyone say melt us so you can remember. Mold us, Mold us. fill us, us, and then send us. Okay. Uh, so I guess I have to sing, huh? All right. <laughs> and let's make this our prayer. Uh, melt us, mold us, fill us, send us. Spirit of